Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. In preparation of this interview, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with, um, with your father's book, The Four Agreements, um, but I was less familiar with, um, with, with your work and um, I was listening to an audio book of The Five Levels of Attachment um, and there was a, a, something that you said in that towards the, towards the end of the book about how uh, the, the meaning of the word Toltec is actually uh, artist or um, mm-hmm. my understanding of that is that to live as a Toltec means to live as as a as an artist where life is an art form yes um i was really kind of struck by this concept and i was wondering if you could elaborate on that for me sure 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 well that's you can say that's the that's the root of the tradition uh, of the, the toltec tradition you can say uh like like you said toltec is a nahuatl word that's the language of the other mesoamerican language uh, spoken by the aztecs and Many, many people from the, the Central Valley of Mexico uh, before the Columbus uh, arrival. And uh, it means artist in English. If I translate the phrase, the Toltec art of transformation, it basically means the artist path of transformation. I'm an artist, and the canvas for my art is my life, uh, everything I do. So you can say the instruments by which I create my work of art is my will, my yes and my no, this this body, this mind, I'm actively constructing this work of art and I have the capacity to make uh, a perfect mirror or the most harmonious dream. But with every stroke I create or with, you can say with every choice I make, my my work of art evolves and creates. So just imagine a painting that's evolving with every stroke and it changes, you know, it, it morphs into a different scene continuously in real time. So from that point of view, that's how we see in the tradition, that's how we see ourselves as this artist that you can say we're co-creating with our brothers and sisters that dream of us or the work of art that is us. And it's up to us what kind of a messenger do we want to be? Do we want to be a messenger of conditional love or a messenger of unconditional love, to put it as in simple terms like that? Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. lives a Toltec life, but it hasn't always been this way. Brought up as the son and namesake of his father, Don Miguel Ruiz Sr., he witnessed his father go from doctor to world-renowned spiritual teacher and author of The Four Agreements. The Four Agreements, which are always be impeccable with your word, don't take anything personally, never make assumptions, and always do your best, which you've possibly heard me referring to in many episodes of this podcast. They underpin all of Don Miguel Ruiz Jr.'s own teachings and have gotten me through some fairly pivotal moments on this crazy little adventure that we call L-I-F-E. You can read everything relating to Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., including his book that we talk quite a bit about, The Five Stages of Attachment, at MiguelRuizJr.com. That's M-I-G-U-E-L-R-U-I-Z-J-R.com. And while you've got that website open and you're browsing, you should probably open a new tab. Type in 
www.comingupnext.com.au Follow the links to iTunes or Stitcher or Podbean. Subscribe to the show. And if you're digging this free podcast, give it a five-star rating. And you know, while you're clicking over those five stars, I mean, not that I'm attached to the concept, but while you're doing that, downloading the Kindle version of the Five Levels of Attachment I'm going to pass you back to myself and my mind-blowing, soul-soothing chat with Don Miguel Ruiz, Jr. In, uh, in the five levels of attachment, you, you talk about, you know, speaking of, you know, your, your father and your grandmother, you talked about this kind of pivotal moment where your grandmother said to you, and I'm paraphrasing, but she said something like, is knowledge using you or are you using knowledge? And, and, it, was like, and it was quite a pivotal uh, moment in time for you. Uh, what was it about that that really resonated with you in that moment? Well, she asked me that question at the age of 14 or 15, actually, uh, after some years of apprenticing with her and having a difficult time translating for her. That was part of my, my, how my apprenticeship with my grandmother was to translate what she was saying from Spanish into English. And at first, it was very difficult because she just kept going. You know, she wouldn't pause for me. And after some time, she, I, she asked me, Are you, do you know why you're having such a difficult time translating for me? And I said to her, well, it's because you don't give me enough time. You're, you're, you got to slow down. <laughs> and all my, because, you know, what, what was happening is that, you know, I would, at first she would probably start slow and I, I would listen to her process what she said and tra- uh, tra- translate it and put it in words that were accurate. And then little by little that cue of thing of things that she had said was piling up to the point where I couldn't catch up to what she was saying. So I either had to go through the queue or cut cut through that and just do what she's speaking right now, which means I cut through a lot. So that was the difficulty I was having. And my grandmother says, Well, do you know why you're having problems? And I said, Well, because she wasn't going at the pace and she couldn't help me. And she said are you using knowledge or are you, or is knowledge using you? Which I, at the age of 14 or 15, I had no idea what that meant. You know, I, I kind of, I, I would, I would pretend to you know, but it, it just struck me. And she said, the reason why is that you're having a hard time translating for me is that you're paying attention to the voice inside your mind, putting it into words that you understand. But at one point you stop listening to me, you stop, you only listen to what you're saying in your own mind. And, that's the thing about life. Life continues. Life never stops for you. Life just continues to flow and evolve. And if you're too busy paying attention to your processing of what you're perceiving, what, what waiting for your mind to translate it or put into words that you can understand, you've missed the moment and you're not no longer paying attention to life. So she said, that's the problem. And you're going to be doing that not just with my voice. You're going to be hearing that with your relationships. You're going to be hearing it with your times in life, your creativity, things things such as that. You're going to miss out because you're too busy putting it into words to give it meaning when all the meaning you really need is to engage it. In essence, that's exactly what she said. Then she said, I want you from now on to transplant you translate for me that the voice you hear inside your mind is not your voice, but my voice. And it's going to be in Spanish. But when you open your mouth, it's going to be in English because you already know the language. You already know the concepts. Get yourself out of the way and listen 
to what you're perceiving. And little by little, you know, you can say in the practice of it all, I had to learn to reduce my the, my attention to the things that distracted me. Like, for example, when I translate for her, I would close my eyes so that way I'm not distracted by what my sight. Then I had to learn, even with more difficulty, because he, closing my eyes is easy, but not tuning, not giving attention to the things I hear. Then when I learned how to get, not to give attention to the things I hear, I had to not give attention to my body, that not to give any attention to the to the itch or those things. And then came the most difficult part, not to give attention to my thoughts, because any of those things would distract me. And if I got distracted, I would lose her. So I got to the point where I was able to translate for her in real time. That was the immediate aspect of it. And, and that part of that practice took me several years to be able to speak, uh, translate for my grandmother at the real time. But in regards to the question, does knowledge control you or do you not, or does knowledge control, or do you control knowledge? When I was writing the book, The Five Levels of Attachment, and talking about the processes of attachment, I used that question because the more attached we are to something, the answer changes. So you can say that, in essence, when knowledge has control of me, it's when I invested so much of myself in my beliefs that my beliefs dictate my actions. You can say my tradition, my my politics, my my religion, my faith, or my habits, or my eat, even my, my diet control my actions rather than me. But when I control knowledge, I know I'm aware, fully aware that knowledge exists because I exist, that I give it control, that, I, that my beliefs are my creation. So you can say that at level one, the authentic self, the answer to my grandmother's question, do you control knowledge or does knowledge control you? is that I'm fully aware that I'm a living being, regardless of what I think, regardless of what I know, I'm aware that I'm alive. And because I'm alive, I can go in any direction. Thus, the answer is, it doesn't matter what I know, I'm alive. Thus, I am. I'm the infinite possibility. At level two, which is preference, the answer is, I'm aware that I'm the authentic self, which is just a name that we described to the energy we call being alive or this being that gives life to this body, that infinite possibility. And that knowledge is the instrument that I'm going to use to inform my choice. That's what knowledge is. It's just an instrument that allows me to understand the world, but it's just an instrument because it informs my choice, but I'm the one making the choice. At level three, identity, when my attachment to my beliefs are becomes the point where me and my mind are one, or my beliefs and I are one, then knowledge and I are one. That's the answer to the question. Do you control knowledge or does knowledge control you? At level three, I identify myself. It gives me my sense of self. That which leads me to level four, internalization, when I begin to domesticate myself or condition myself or program myself, whatever word we want to use there, to living up to that image of my identity. And the answer becomes, knowledge becomes the rules gives me the rules by which I live my life, but also the rules by which I love myself, which leads us to level five fanaticism, where knowledge has complete control of me, where my knowledge, just like Don Quixote, who can't take action if it's not in his books of chivalry, 
I can't take action if it's not within my parameter of my attachment, if it's of my belief, be it in religion or politics or even diet. So from that point of view, that's how I began to break down the answer to my grandma's question and realizing that the answer tends to change wherever I'm at in life. If I'm projecting onto life what I want to see in my attachment, in my fanaticism or in my in my pref- in my internalization or do i use knowledge as an instrument in my in my preference in life or even in my identity but you can say that's that's the quest for the artist with when we're so attached you can say that the beliefs control the work of art that i don't paint it my beliefs do or someone else's judgment is when i control my thoughts when i control my knowledge then the, the creator of my work of art is me, life. So for me, that's, you could say, that's, that's where my, became a pivotal point in my life because in each stage of my life and in, in the process I've been in, the answer changed. And that's what's pivotal about it. Everything changes, everything morphs, everything evolves with every new choice, with every new action. So, yeah. put simply uh, I mean one of the things that I love about these Toltec teachings that is that you know you and and your your father have made these concepts so accessible to people and I think they are uh, fundamentally simple concepts um, and there's so much elegance in the simplicity of them um, I'd love to continue talking about the five levels of attachment, but I feel as though the four agreements kind of underpins the kind of oh, yeah. basic philosophies of not only that, but of of so much. I, I know for me, this you know that book was given to me at quite a pivotal moment in my life as well, and really, uh, really awakened something in me. Um, so I'd love to kind of. Uh, speak to you kind of directly about well first of all I'd love to know sure. what it was like for you growing up uh, with you know your your father being this great kind of spiritual uh, figure in a way um, and what it was like growing up with these kind of four agreements four principles being given to you from an early age sure well it's it's a uh... Well, it's fun because I love my papa. You know, I I, I enjoy <laughs> living life with him. So for me, that's mm. that's that's the part of it. It was it was an enjoyable experience. Uh, being, I'm also the his eldest son, which means that I got to witness the evolution of my father and his in his in his work and his journey. I remember Don uh, Doctor Miguel Ruiz when I was very young, because he was a general surgeon, almost becoming a neurosurgeon, and. Dr. Miguel Ruiz, you know, his parenting skills and his life skills were different. You know, I, I rarely saw him because, well, as you might know, a doctor and a surgeon, you know, the, the life, you know, you live by the page. So, but also he, he had that part of like, I needed you to get the straight A's and discipline and all that kind of thing. Then I remember the man who had a, a moment in life and began to apprentice with his with his mother, my, my grandmother. And he was going back and forth. He would go to my grandma and do the training and teachings, things that, you know, as a kid, I wouldn't understand. I had no idea. You know, for me, my grandmother was our spiritual fam- member of the family. She was the head. 
you know, a, a, a mat- the, mat- the main matriarch and the spiritual figurehead of the whole family. You know, we, my, she had 13 kids and 64, we had 64 cousins and I already had nephews when I was born, my, my cousin's kids. And it was magical. She was, it was spiritual. It was wonderful. And my dad went from being a doctor into that. And then the moment where he decided to let go of the medical profession, somewhere somewhere in his mid-30s or early 30s, he let go of being a doctor to pursue uh, this tradition full, full-heartedly. You know, you, you can imagine the turmoil that came from that. You know, who does that? And the, the downfalls of my parents divorcing, you know, coming probably from that that whole thing. And I'm saying it from the point of view of a, of a child who, as, a, as an adult who's looking back on his childhood, you know, I, I, tried, I can understand and comprehend and can project from that point of view. But the parenting style that he had during that time changed. You know, it, was a, it was a combination of the old doctor who wanted, you know, a certain level of excellence for his kids to uh, being a bit more lax about it because he was facing his own domestication. He was facing his own conditioning and, and, and things like that. You, know, it's, you, you can't give what you do not have. So at that time, that was, was what he had. He, he was battling and letting go of his own domestication, of his own conditional love. And then there was a breakthrough. He became a shaman, you know, he, full-fledged. And he was very... At that point, his st- parenting style technique changed dramatic to a more lysis fair type of thing. Uh, very, very letting life happen. And then once he became Don Miguel Ruiz, you can say that he reached a certain stage in his life and of understanding. The lysis fair came t- to be combined with this guiding element of putting us in a situation where life teaches us. He let us become aware of our own consequences, of giving us so much room to make our own mistakes and learn from our mistakes that he never, he stopped kind of judging us for making mistakes. He actually was embracing them because he saw us opportunities to say, what did you learn? Which was dramatically different from I need that that A, I need that 10. Because in Mexico, that's what how you get the grades, 10. So I, I used to live in San Diego and I crossed the border into Tijuana to go to school in Tijuana. It was backwards. And it was the straight A's or the t- straight 10s. If you got a 9, if you got an A minus or a B, it was tough. And that changed to, all right, let's see what you can do. What's the strength of what you can? And developing your own confidence in yourself. So for me, that was... That was the change. You, I, I witnessed a man evolve in his own trajectory in life and see the man who he is now. And the thing is, is that when the Four Agreements came out in 1997, this this year is the 20-year anniversary of the Four Agreements. When it came out, we, it was it was hard to find. You know, it, it took a couple of years to find it in a bookstore. But having read the book, and he, my dad gave me the book. I read two or three chapters, but somewhere between the third and fourth, I put the book down because to me it was my dad telling me what to do all over again. <laughs> it's 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 funny how you know when you grow up with it, you know, like how we kids tend to misunderstand it or 
you know, we see it as the four conditions as, a, as opposed to the four agreements. Yeah, wow. And the reason why we misunderstand that is because, you know, I, I, I like to teach that. I, I love teaching the four conditions because it allows us aware, one, that how easy it is for us to corrupt a beautiful tradition because all the work we do, the problem that the four agreements, along with all the books in our family, that the book tackles is domestication, which is a system of reward and punishment by which we model the behavior of an individual. If you live up to the expectation, you get the reward. And if you don't live up to the expectation, you get the punishment. And since we are emotional beings that we perceive life through this emotional body, feeling the full spectrum of all our emotions, that reward feels like acceptance, like love. And the punishment feels like rejection, the lack thereof of love. It's the way we've learned conditional love. And that's the problem that the Four Agreements, along the Mastery of Love, Voice of Knowledge, and all those other books, tackles. This is the problem. And because of that, sometimes we can say we're attached to it. We're, we're attached to that domestication. We're attached to judging ourselves for not living up to an image. Because without it, well, how do we know we love ourselves? How do we know life without it? You know, once I, a, a student of mine asked me, when did we lose sight of our authentic self? And my answer to her was, the moment we prefer the illusion or the lie over the truth. And the reason why we prefer the illusion or the lie is because it's what we know, is what we're used to, is what we, makes us feel grounded. In, in, in my grandmother's terms, knowledge has control of me. It's because I know it. It, it makes me feel safe but mostly because I don't have confidence in myself to make the choices. Thus, I give away my power. Well, domestication is a way that I give away my power that I've, or I've, it's been imposed on, subjugated and imposed onto me. It's, it's because the only way to control the will of another is to make them doubt themselves, to make them doubt their own capacity to say yes or no. That's why it's an instrument to model the behavior of an individual with conditional love being the motivator. So when we're young, and I'm not, I'm, I may not be the only one, because if you've ever judged yourself for taking things personal, if you've ever judged yourself for making an assumption, if you've ever judged yourself for uh, not being impeccable with the word or not doing your best, then welcome to the club. You've used <laughs> the four agreements to domesticate yourself. Yeah. Because the telltale, the telltale sign of domestication is judgment. We judge ourselves for not living up to that image. And that's how we corrupt the four agreements and turn it into the four conditions. We do that with Chopra. We do that with Marianne Williamson, with Wayne Dyer, with Krishna, with Buddha, with Christ, with Muhammad, psychology, psychiatry, AA. When we're so attached to that system of domestication, we can corrupt everything. So then how do we use the four agreements? Then it becomes an instrument. It's an instrument that informs our choice, but we're the ones making the choice. For example, not taking things personally, to me, is is knowing the truth that I don't only control to the tips of my own fingers. I don't control the will, I don't control your will, and I don't control your perception. I only control my perception. So to me, just to put it as simply because of time, of course, is that I don't assume responsibility for anyone else's will but mine. And with that, there's uh, Eleanor Roosevelt quote that encapsulates it perfectly. No one can make me feel inferior without my consent. 
to me that's that's really a beautiful way to put that so to not take things personal is not to give anyone permission to make me inferior especially don't give myself permission to make myself feel inferior yeah so from that point of view once i become aware and I accept the truth that i do take things personal i do make assumptions i do sometimes i'm not impeccable with my words sometimes I don't do my best. It's the moment where I stop pretending to be something I am not and I accept the truth. This is who I am. Just like an alcoholic or drug addict, I accept the moment of clarity. I accept the truth. And these are the things that I do. But if I look at those things, then I see them as an instrument that inform my choice. Because going back to not taking things personal, having accepted the fact that I take things personal, then I read the chapter about how not to take it personal, which I just described, is to not take responsibility for anyone else's will but my own. Then I look at what triggers me to take things personal. And when I become aware of that, that, that honesty with myself, what makes me take things personal? Then I see you know, some guy may make a comment on Facebook that makes me go, grr, I found a trigger. <laughs> And I can find many, many more. Mm. But now I can't go back in the past and change a yes to a no or, or I can't go to the future because it doesn't exist yet. The only place where I can practice not taking things personal is in this present moment. So in this present moment, there's nothing that's making me get triggered. So I log on to a social media site. I find this person. What they posted makes me go, grr, it's a doozy. And I have a choice. If I want to take it personal, then I'll take it personal. But if I don't want to take it personal, then this book just informed me how not to take it personal. And that's when that agreement becomes alive. I used it to not take things personal. I used it as an instrument to inform my choice. So all this thing, along going back to your original question, what was it like to grow up with Don Miguel Ruiz and the four agreements and how they play my life? is that it took me several years, I can almost say over a decade, to become aware how attached I was to domestication and how not to corrupt the four agreements as an excuse to love myself conditionally in order to live up to the image of Don Miguel Ruiz Jr., which, by the way, doesn't exist, and to see myself for who I am. And when I stop pretending to be something I'm not, that's when I begin to see myself for who I am. And that's the truth of who I am. It's funny how with these kinds of teachings and this kind of, uh, I suppose, conscious awakening, um, whether it's through the four agreements or, you know, you, you touched on Chopra and, you know, Ram Dass, all of these great kind of uh, figures who are so kind of engaged with um, conscious awakening there's that kind of predisposed, as you say, domesticated judgment that you have. And it's it's funny how part of the evolutionary process is really just identifying where we have these trigger points and then taking the steps to remove the layers of judgment before we can, you know, really step into it. So when you are triggered by someone uh, doing something in your direction... Uh, you know, you, you and you do take it personally. It's almost like when you find like a, a knot in your muscle, you know, you can't remove it immediately. You kind of have to massage it out. 
Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of in that, in that phase of, of really understanding where everything is and how it all kind of fits together. Um, I'm not really sure where I'm going with that, but it's just a, an interesting thought that I had as you were, as you were talking. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know if you remember the first time that you did have a kind of, I suppose, awakened moment in your childhood or, uh, growing up and, what what that experience was like for you wow uh that was gonna be a hard one to answer because i've got way too many <laughs> <laughs> i'm like i, I have I, yeah, I i have to go into my memory and look look past my own story and, and look at it as a moment of awakening you know because you know after all, all this time i can process and skew things but you know when i was young when i was really young I witnessed my grandmother do a lot of miracles because she was a faith healer. So my grandmother just had such a strong intent, such a strong faith in herself. And she would always say it's not her, that she's just an instrument by which God heals. That's she always said, she said like a, like a mantra almost knowing being with a humility, but it was always that faith that intrigued me. Like that my grandmother would say no, but not from doubt, but from integrity. And that's the thing I've, I became aware of with my grandmother, that doubt makes you judge yourself in a way that it gives away your power. And having complete faith is to take away any doubt and become aware of how strong your intent is, of your capacity. That's one thing my grandmother always taught me, so to always follow through. With that being said, I would say that my biggest moment of clarity in my life, that the one that would say that changed my life forever, is a particular breakup. I had a breakup where I could no longer lie to myself because up to that point, I've had breakups and it's easy to project blame onto other people or this or that. Then you have that one breakup where you can't project it. You <sighs> know it was all you. It's all you. Mm. And, and the heartbreak... The real heartbreak that came for me wasn't necessarily necessarily just the losing of this particular individual in my life, whom I loved very much, is that I I became aware of my own lie. I was trying so desperately to live up to this image that that I was living in constant fear of it. And that was the heartbreak. That that image that I thought of myself didn't exist. And that was the biggest heartbreak. You know, my father always said that heartbreak is the moment where illusion breaks. That's what makes it heartbreaking. You want that illusion to be the truth, but it's not. So for me, when I became aware that at the root of the problems I was having in, romantically it was just the symptom of, of, of what was happening within me internally in my relationship with myself, was that I had no acceptance of myself. I really tried to be something I wasn't. And I could see really clearly. And it was painful. It was dramatically painful. As, you know, it's... <laughs> I was going to say, as any Smith song would <laughs> you know. But um, it's... It was a moment where I became... Every... Every wound I ever had, I was carrying it like a badge and not letting it out. Not, I was carrying 
the you could say the the metaphorical image of carrying the corpses of every relationship I was in and letting that those corpses infect every relationship that I was presently in. Which means I just never gave myself time to heal. I never gave myself time to heal. So after that few months of sadness and depression or whatever that was, I gave myself a year of not being with anyone and did the work. You know, just because I'm Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. and the grandson of Madasarita doesn't mean that this comes automatic. We all do the work. If we want to do this, do that kind of thing, we 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 do the work. So you can say that having grown up with it, I knew all the loopholes. I knew what to say in order to make it seem like I knew what I was talking about, or at least to myself. And then came the moment where, you know, I'm going to do the work because I've reached a point where pretending no longer worked for me. Some I was somewhere in my mid-twenties when this happened, or like late to mid, like 26, 27, something like that. Somewhere between 25 and 20, 25 or 27 years old, somewhere in between that, that the, all this went down. And when I came out of it, I I was happy. I I was so sh- confident in myself. I wouldn't say sure of myself. I would say confident in myself. I was happy with being alone. And all of a sudden, I didn't have that fear of being alone anymore. I enjoyed being me. And for some reason, at that point, you know, my, my tolerance for things kind of went down. I would like, why waste my time with someone who doesn't want to be with me? Like, at the same time, I, I, I was I was really selective about my life and things like that. I, I, I wanted to do things that made me happy. And luckily for me, that's when I met my wife and we've been together 13 years since then. But uh, to me, that whole experience, that whole moment of heartbreak changed my life for the rest forever. I'm, I'm the man I am now because it, it was that moment where it made me stop and do the work. And I'm still doing the work. For as long as I'm alive, I'll be doing the work. Mm. <laughs> how do you, I suppose, continue? Uh, well, how do you begin to integrate these kind of concepts into your life on a day-to-day basis? Oh, well, for me, you know, if I contrast that to when I was young, which basically means that it belongs in a library or it's a book or what does that have to do with my life? It belongs in a museum. You know, when you learn things, that's how, you know, as students in, 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 in school, we treat knowledge like that. What does that have to do with me? You know, we just look at it as an instrument that's going to get us our good grades. And I think a lot of us do that. And then, you know, we start, then we begin studying something that speaks to us and all of a sudden we see it everywhere, right? We, some, some of us, and I speak in general here, some of us uh, have lucky enough that we look at our studies and we're studying something that resonates with us and we become a professional in that because it resonates with us. Some of us last a bit longer. It takes a bit longer to get that. So for me, it's the moment that my father and my grandmother stopped being my teachers and life began to be, became my teacher life began to teach me through the consequences of my own choices. 
And then all of a sudden, all these things that my father and my grandmother taught me stopped being something metaphorical or conceptual. It became something that I could see in the world. You know, the the image of the of the smoking mirror, when we're so attached to our beliefs, we can see beyond the tips of our nose. You can say that's level five in fanaticism when knowledge controls us. You can you can see it in sports. You can see it in politics when we, we the diehard fan doesn't take any action unless the the team or the politics or the or the beliefs say you can. That's when you're blinded by what you see. When you, you no longer see the humanity of an individual, you only see the personification of an idea that either you agree with or don't agree with, and you start seeing it as a human behavior, as a, a certain human aspect of certain people that's when it becomes not something that belongs in a book or in a, in a museum it's something that you're looking at right in front of your face and, and and at the same time you get to see how living your authenticity you see it in the people who are incredibly happy you know there there's there they might be working jobs that we other people may not like but Man, they have a big, huge smile on their face when they're doing something they love to do, even if it's mundane. They enjoy it. They're like, oh, I love doing this. That's when you're living your passion. So it stops being something that it's in a book. It's something that you see someone do in life. And that's, that's to me, when it becomes something practical. You can say that the reason why our books are simplistic and but to the point is because we don't, dwell too much on the on the conceptual part of it we are reflecting what how we've learned life you know the four agreements in particular my father when he began to apprentice with my grandmother he saw the fanaticism that existed in the totic tradition because after a generation after a generation there there have been some distortion and he combined the western medicine and, 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 and psychology that he's learned from towards being a neurosurgeon and combined with a Toltec and then combined with his own life and he put the Toltec tradition in a language we can all understand. He took out a lot of the fanaticism out of it. He took a lot of the symbology out of it, but he continued to teach the concepts. So imagine that you take out the image of Tezcatlipocatl. That's the, the image of the of the de- deity. But then you start... But, but then you begin to only teach the concept that gave life to that image. And that's what you teach. And that's what, how my father taught us. So for us, we talk about what we know. We don't touch what we don't. If we don't know it, if we haven't experienced it, we don't touch it. We don't talk about it because we haven't experienced it. We haven't, we haven't experienced it in a way that we can put words into it other than you know, we can repeat it like parakeets, but it has no sense of self because we didn't live it. And to me, that's that's the essence of it. Well, that's that's how these teachings become something uh, functional in the world that, and you apply it in the world because they're relevant. You see the relevance. You see how the 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 four agreements, in particular, let's just continue using that example, or the five levels. Are relevant in your life. That's the reason why in the, in the book I use the analogy of soccer or football or of sports because it's easier to talk about sports than politics or religion. It's I talk I, I might reach level two, uh, three and I I start losing people. Sometimes even at two I lose people 
but at 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 at, at level f- uh, using sports, you can see that it has nothing to do with us. But yet, little by little, the more invest the line that separates the stands, well, where the fans are, and the and the pitch begins to blur, and then we project ourselves as being on the field. We project ourselves as being those colors, and that somehow my cheering helped my team win. You can see how that blurred line leaves leads because from the attachment one has. That's yeah. why. That's how I use that image. That's how. That's 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 the instrument. Mm, I, I yeah, I really loved that uh, that analogy in the book. It really uh, resonated very strongly, and I can see in my own life, uh, you know, going through my own kind of uh, evolution, I suppose. From where I, when I started, you know, a few years ago on a kind of path of self-discovery, um, how kind of fanatical and attached I would be to sporting teams to now where um, it, it, I don't feel as attached or as emotionally invested. There's still, there's still some there, but, you know, where if my team would lose, I would be upset and depressed for days. Now, I, you know, it's once the game's over, I don't really think about it again. Yeah. Um, I'd love to kind of understand from your point of view how how we can kind of start to, I guess, build tolerance or understand people when we don't quite get their motives or when they start to push our buttons. Because I know like, you know, when you're speaking with, with someone that you disagree with or like a, a manager at work or something starts to really push your buttons... And you start, you know, you see red and all of a sudden all of these four agreements or these levels of attachment, all of these great concepts <laughs> that you've been working so hard on yourself with uh, suddenly just disappear and all, and, and you're immediately, you know, you're not being impeccable with your word. You're taking everything personally. You're making so many assumptions about why they're behaving this way and you're certainly not doing your best. Mm-hmm. How can we, in those moments, uh, best serve ourselves and pull ourselves back into a state of, you know, uh, honoring those four agreements or moving out of the, you know, the, that kind of fifth level of attachment and back to our true kind of self? Well, that's a great question. It's a, and it's a complicated one because I've, I, I can go in any, in many directions <laughs> with it. Um, but I'll, I'll do my best. Um, first things first, uh, it starts with being honest with yourself. It's, 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 it's knowing that this is how I feel. And some people will trigger me, some people more than others, you know, uh, practicing, not taking things personal starts. It's easy when you start practicing with the outer rims of your sphere of influence or the people in your life, your inner circle, your circle of friends or family, you work, you, you start out all the way out there and you slowly make your way towards the center. And you find that the biggest people who affect you is people who are closer to the center because you love them, and you you you, you see them for the who they are. So it takes practice. It, it it really is about the practicing of not taking things personal. Which to me, what allows me to do that is to be compassionate. You know, to be compassionate. That's how people see it. You know, my favorite lesson of Christ is. Forgive them, Father, they do not know what they do because God, Christ could see them that they're completely blinded by their attachment to the Romans and the people who were there around them celebrating his crucifixion. 
And he sees that they, they can't see beyond the tips of their nose, that they're blinded by their ideas, level four, level five of the attachments. And he says, I forgive you. Then God forgive them. They do not know what they do. Imagine that, to forgive before God does. That's that's why it's my favorite teaching. Mm. To me, it's, 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 it's compassion, the willingness to see it from someone else's point of view, which starts within myself. I can't give what I do not have. So from there, as a teacher, myself considering myself a teacher. <laughs> um, I think that's a fair, I, uh, fair consideration. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> um, one of the things I've learned after all these years of doing what I've been doing, and as a teacher, I've been practicing 11 years now. I'm going on 11 years of doing this. And I can get to the point where I've become aware of a grave, great, great, big truth. Every time I say something, I am right and I'm wrong at the same time. I say my words. I say it with integrity. You see, because like I said before in the conversation, I only control to the tips of my fingers. I don't control beyond that. I don't control your perception, nor do I understand your understanding. For example, there are things that both you and I speak English, but there are words in, in Australia that may be innocent and may be, and that same word may have a derogatory mean here in the States or vice versa. Now, there are words here in the States that are innocent that I know that for a fact that in the UK, they're terrible, mm. they're terrible words. You know, they're just, you know, uh, pants and trousers are a, a very innocent example. Uh, um, and then there's a world like Fanny that here in the States is an innocent term that people even name their daughters after them. And I know in the UK, that's a very derogatory, <laughs> very demeaning word. Oh, right? yeah. It's the same symbol, same word, but two different cultures that both speak English have given it a total definition because we're, even though it's spelled the same way, pronounced the same way, enunciated the same way, but two different cultures separated by a body of water, the Pacific or the Atlantic, have given it a totally different meaning. So every symbol, every word we use is an empty symbol whose definition is completely subject to agreement. Because you grew up using knowledge in the way you've learned to use knowledge in Australia. I learned to use knowledge in Southern California. And someone in the United Kingdom learned it in the United Kingdom. Of course, I'm describing language as knowledge because language and knowledge are one and, one and the same. Because it's, it's the vehicle by which we share with one another how we perceive the world. That's what knowledge is. Knowledge is this mirror that reflects life as is. And the distortion just simply is that even though it reflects life as is, it's still subject to agreement. That's why it's distorted. And words like F-A-N-N-Y, it may have a derogatory meaning or it might be the F word in certain parts of the world. So, and I'm, I'm and I'm using as a Southern California. So, from my point of view, it's innocent because that's how I know it. That's how it's, I, I know a, a girl whose first name is Fanny. So, for me, it's still innocent, <laughs> right? Mm. And someone who grew up with the other one, they'll see the 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 corrupt word, the distortion, and they'll say, "How can a spiritual person like you use such filthy language like that?" I don't control the perception of another individual. I don't. I only control my own. So I'm responsible for the integrity and the clarity of my own words. That's what I control of. 
if I know that that word has that meaning, then we're going to ask, like, I, and the way I found out about it is because someone asked me, Miguel, what does that word mean to you? She gave me the benefit of the doubt because she could have easily been attached to her belief and called me out and saying, you disgusting, moronic, blah, 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 whatever, for using that word. But she asked me, she gave me the benefit of the doubt and asked me, what does that word mean to you? I, equ I equated to Morpheus in the Matrix offering me the red pill or the blue pill. If you take the blue 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 pill, I think, that means that you'll stay in the dream and that is what it means. And you won't see beyond that. But asking the question is taking the other pill, which is the willingness to see life from someone else's point of view. And the, so when I teach, someone will hear the words as I intended and someone will go. But I don't control their perception, which means I am right to the people who agree with me, and I am wrong to the people who disagree with me. But I, even with the same word, in the same space, and the same time, that's what I say. So, in the world where we surround ourselves, we are all controlling our perception, and we share our point of view as best we can. When we don't ask each other, what does that mean to you, then we make the perfect opportunity to make an assumption and believe that we're saying exactly the same thing and we get angry at one another. Sometimes we decide to give the benefit of the doubt, which simply is just a way to express our compassion and ask, what does that mean to you? And when you hear it, you, you initiate a dialogue. And in that dialogue, you might find the things where you have common ground and then the parts where you disagree. And sometimes you find that you disagree more than you find common ground. But most of the time you find that you have a lot more common ground than disagreements, which is the willingness to listen to one another. So in the ability, in the bigger scheme of things, in the, in, in the 7.5 billion human beings of living life, that will be difficult to do because it requires all 7.5 billion people to do it at the same time, <laughs> which is possible. The yeah. opportunity is there. That's, for as long as we're all alive, that opportunity is there. But everyone has to be willing to listen. So it starts with what do I really control? I don't control the rest of the 7.5 billion. I only control this one, which is me. I control me. So it starts there. Am I going to allow assumptions to control my perception, thus seeing life with, through a distortion. Because the best way to describe an assumption is the Gestalt principle of closure, if you, which states, if you draw a circle and you don't close it, the mind can project the missing part to create a hole. If you draw, if you draw two sides of a triangle and you don't draw the third line to close the, circle, the, the triangle, the mind will project the missing line because the mind likes to have closure. And the reason why it wants closure is because we make choices based on what we perceive. And knowing the most that we can allows us. So that missing piece of information is what I know and what I call is an assumption, a projected story that might fill the gap. And the danger of it is to believe it to be truth because we tend to believe our assumptions. So from that point of view, we stop listening because we're we're giving our attention and our belief to our own our own uh, uh, presupposed or 
prejudiced projection. And what I mean prejudice is mean, mean that that's the one I want to hear. I, wa- I only hear what I want to hear or see what I want to see. That's what drives up an assumption to be dangerous. We take action based on them. So when we are willing to listen to the people in our lives, to be willing to say, what does that mean to you? Then we have the capacity to alleviate some of that anger because yes, there are people in our lives that will anger us. And trust me, you know, we just went through an election and both sides, people are arguing with one another and it happens. The temptation is there to begin to argue, but we're just trying to domesticate each other. Who is going to domesticate who? That's, that's the temptation. That's why we get angry. That anger is just an instrument that, that makes us try to domesticate someone else to our point of view. Life would be so much easier if you only surrender to my point of view and you make me right. <laughs> but when you have the rest of people feeling like that, then we have a battle. Who is going to domesticate who? So from that point of view, to break the cycle, it starts within ourselves. And at first it may be difficult, and trust me, it's difficult. It took me a long time because in 2004, you know, 2005, that election, I was arguing with everyone. I was arguing with the left and with the right. Now I'm, I'm, I'm not, I listen and I disagree. I'm totally free to disagree with a lot of it. And I agree with a lot of it at the same time. I disagree with a lot. So the thing about it is recognizing and respecting the will of another, which is to respect someone is to to respect them to make the choices for themselves, which also means to respect them to experience the consequences of their own choices. The way my father taught taught me how not to take things personal is uh, him and I, we did an event in Rochester, New York in 2009, and the people who set us up put us up in a very nice restaurant, a uh, n- nice hotel with a nice restaurant. So when we finished doing the presentation that evening, we went back to the hotel and we saw people eating. And I saw that people all dressed nice in suits and nice uh, women all dressed nicely dressed. It was a nice venue. My father says, oh, let's go grab a bite to eat. And I said, well, let's go upstairs and freshen up so we can go and eat. And my dad said, my dad said oh, okay, fine, let's, let's do that. So we go upstairs, and I go to my room. He goes to his room, freshen up and all that. I look all smart and good. Go downstairs, and my dad's not ready. So I wait down there. Just I look at all the people. Everyone's dressed nice. It's a nice restaurant, a nice hotel. And my dad comes down. The elevator opens when he comes out, and um, he's dressed in his pajamas, and he's wearing (laughs) slippers. And I'm going, oh, no, it's a lesson. Oh, no. I'm not going to bite, I'm not going to bite, I'm not going to bite. And my dad walks up to me straight ahead and looks him in the eye and says, is there anything wrong? And I said, <laughs> nope, 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 I'm not going to bite, not going to bite, nope, nope, everything okay. He says, are you sure? And I said, yep, okay, let's go eat. So he starts walking and goes straight to the restaurant and I'm following him like an embarrassed teenager whose father has embarrassed him again and I'm in my, in my, my, I'm in my 30s. So we get to the restaurant, and there's no sign of a dress code. There's no rules anywhere. So the hostess, very professional, looks at me, my dad, and my dad's girlfriend, who was with us, and says, table for three. And my dad says, yes. She goes, right this way. Very professional, doesn't say anything. 
And we follow her, and she guides us through the middle of the restaurant towards our booth. And as we're walking, because I'm in the back, you know, the embarrassed teenager who's 30 years old, um, I look at the whole restaurant, turning their head towards my dad, and I can hear the murmurs, and I'm incredibly embarrassed and self-conscious. I'm, <laughs> I'm incredibly embarrassed. And when we get to the booth, my dad turns again and says, is there anything wrong? And I said, nope, nope. So doing my best to have a poker face so that he you know, doesn't see that I'm mortified. And when we sit down and the hostess leaves and my dad's looking, fumbling around the menu trying to read it, and he realized that he forgot his reading glasses, his girlfriend lends him hers, and they're the a different prescription, so his eyes bug out because of the lens, and I just could, my poker face gave out. I rolled my eyes and went, "Oh!" <laughs> and my dad pounced. He went, "What's wrong?" And I went, "Pop, come on! This is the nice restaurant. It's it's people here are dressed nice, and here you are dressed like that. Like they'll think that you're some kind of uh, eccentric guy, like Howard Hughes or something." I'm, it's embarrassing. And my father looks at me and says, do you disrespect me so much that you don't think that I can pay my for my own consequences of my own actions that you have to pay for me with your embarrassment? Hmm. Do you disrespect me so much that you have to pay for me? And that's when he be- I became aware that I was taking things personal. You know, part of my domestication was birds of a feather fly together and I'll tell you who you are by who you hang out with. Oh, who you're with, I mean, sorry. And I became aware that that embarrassment is that I'm paying for someone else's choice or actions and I'm paying, paying, paying with my embarrassment because I don't like it. It drives me to, to make them conform to my point of view and, either, and my judgment is the instrument by which I tried to make them comply. And I became aware of how I was taking things personal, how I was disrespecting him not to make a choice, and I was making his choice my choice, which led to my embarrassment. And that's how I became aware that I took things personal. I stopped pretending to be something I am not, and I stopped the truth. I was doing that, and it led me to do that to many other people. And I apologized to him. But a lot of the that, that same embarrassment, you can say a lot of the anger we have out there is basically trying to punish people for making choices that we wouldn't do. And somehow their actions reflect on us, especially in the inner circle, because it's that's why it's so easy to practice on the outer rims of our, our, our sphere of influence, because we kind of don't, their actions don't really represent us. But the more we, we go to the center of it, the more we are attached to them, the more we, we have a bond with them. And somehow we've made their actions represent us somehow. And there it is. And that's the anger. So once you become aware of that in yourself, then you begin to change it. Because once you see it, once you find it, then it's easy to work with it. Because if you don't see it, it's difficult. It's it's still a conceptual thing. But, But when the moment of clarity is here, you know, the best way to let go of the illusion or the lie is to accept the truth when it's presented before you. You, have been, you make a choice. You either continue with this illusion or do you let go. So in a time 
when all these people, all these people are triggering us, there are constant opportunity to, opportunities for us to see the truth. We're taking it personal. We are assuming responsibility beyond the tips of our fingers. And we're trying to control them. And when that happens, well, we, we you know, a prison guard is, is in the same prison as their, as their, as their, uh, people in jail you know there's they're, they're, yes they can get out but they they're in there with them we, we we lose our own personal freedom so respect is simply respecting another individual to make a choice and respecting them also means to let them experience the consequences of their own choices someone asked me what if the person is a bad dude or whatever well the consequences is that that person will have the consequences of their choices, you know, if, if that's their authentic self. In our life, what do we control? Ourselves. And here's the thing. In every relationship we are in, we are the constant. We're the constant in every relationship we're in, which means since we can't give what we do not have, if we have conditional love for ourselves, then every single one of those relationships are the expression of conditional love, of domestication, of conditioning, and all that, of imposing and subjugation. Whoever controls the yes and no of the of the of the relationship controls the relationship. But if I have respect for myself, if I respect my yes and my no, because my no is just as powerful as my yes, well, that allows me to respect you because your no is just as powerful as your yes. In fact. This conversation, this relationship between you and I only exists because we both said yes. If we didn't say yes to one another, we, you'd be doing your thing and I'd be doing my thing. But we both said, hey, you want to have the interview? And I, you said yes, I said yes. Here we are. We, Even though we're separated by a body of water called the Pacific, you and I in real time are talking to one another. And that's what creates a bond. And this bond will exist for as long as both you and I say yes. As soon as one of us changes the no, this this conversation ceases to exist. In fact, we have uh, an hour, and at the at the end of the hour, which we are approximate, we're approximating it, the relationship ends. But a friendship, the more significant ones, lasts for as long as people say yes. And to respect the person across the way from us is to respect that person's capacity to say no. Because if you say no or I say no to something. That thing won't be a part of our relationship or a part of this friendship. The only thing that will be there are the things that we mutually say yes to one another. And that's what makes us free, to be able to say yes and no to one another with a complete freedom of life. That is respect. So when we see, especially with social media and all that, that we can, it's like an amplifier that we can hear and see what everyone thinks and says, Yes, we're going to have triggers. Yes, we're going to get angry. Yes, we're going to do that. The question in our life, if we want to use that as an instrument for our personal transformation is, what is it about that that's making me angry? Why is my anger here? So whatever that triggers me, what is it that's making me want to domesticate someone else in me? Because then I'll find that that something is something domesticating me too. Yes, there's things that are good or bad, right and wrong. Yes, there's the good fight and the bad fight, whatever. 
but it always comes down to that one thing. Is knowledge controlling you or are you controlling knowledge? Because when we get angry because our, our knowledge dictates our anger, then we don't control our emotion. Our beliefs are painting a vulgar picture of our work of art. But if I'm the one controlling it, I could have a disagreement without ever getting angry. And then you realize that anger is just this crutch that I've been using for all these years to make me feel powerful when all I'm really doing is I don't have enough doubt, confidence in myself to say no without anger because they won't hear me. So I have to throw a tantrum. Well, if I say no in the most kindness, silent way, but it's backed by my full intent and my full respect, then that little simple no will be stronger than anything I say in anger. And that's how I become aware of me. That's how I become aware that what is it about this that's going to make me throw away my own respect? Mm. Sorry, as I said it was a complicated answer. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me while I pick my brain up off the floor. Um, my mind has just been blown well and truly open. Um, I am very conscious of uh, not wanting to take up too much of your time. I do have a couple more questions, if that's okay, yeah, sure. but that's fine yes, if it's yes. not. No worries. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned in there, and actually at the beginning of the conversation as well, this idea of conditional love uh, versus unconditional love, uh, and you know, I, I guess to kind of bring this conversation full circle. I'd love to get your kind of definitions of that. A kind of through line of this podcast has been this idea that life, in a way, is about unshackling all of these conditions and these uh, preconceived ideas that we have about life and returning to a state of kind of unconditional love, predominantly, or first and foremost, for oneself. And I think that's kind of what, or not kind of, I think that is what, these four agreements are about by following these uh, these principles, one can achieve that kind of state of unconditional love. So I'd love to kind of get your um, your definitions and your understanding and and find out from you what it is, what it means for you to have that conditional love versus an unconditional love. Sure, sure. Uh, okay, here I go. Uh, uh, just. Bear with me. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to use your imagination throughout this. All right. First things first. I am not this body. My body is an inanimate object that I move. You could say if you look at the concept of physics, an object can only move if there's a force that moves that object. Well, in Nahuatl, an object is matter, which is what we call tonal, and the energy that moves matter, in as we can call it spirit, you can call it soul. We, or intent, in our tradition we call it the Nawal. So the Nawal is the energy that moves the tonal, or you can say the energy that moves this physical body is my spirit, it's my soul, my intent, life, the Nawal. So, and I know that because when I die, be it tomorrow or in 75 years, this body that is talking to you right now will be an inanimate object. It, it'll be as inanimate as the table that's across the way 
or the lamp or the bed that I'm sitting in. It's, it's, in, it's an inanimate. It's just an object. The difference now is that I'm alive and my body is not an inanimate object. It's very much alive. So I am not this body, but I am the force that animates it. And if you understand this concept, you may understand also this one. I'm also not my mind. My mind is alive because I give it life. My mind, as soon as I leave this body, my mind will also leave, disappear. So I'm not this body and I'm not this mind, but I'm the force that animates both, which means the same energy I use to move my legs, the same energy I use to move my arms, is the same energy that I use to create a thought. And at the root of every belief I have in my belief system, there's a yes that gives it meaning. And there's nothing in my belief system that I said no to because no, that two-letter word represents the moment where I make the choice not to use the energy that animates this body, that animates this mind to manifest a single thing. For as long as I say no, that won't be done. Which means that in my belief system, there's nothing I, that's that everything. the only thing that's there are the things I say yes to. Because I give my intent to give it meaning, to give it power, to give it a sense of existence. If you understand that, then my love is alive because I give it life. My life, my love is the expression of me. You can say that the life force that I'm made this body, you can call it love. But my love is alive because I give it life. So I'm the source, the fountain of love. Now, just for the sake of conversation, let's just say that love is the energy that creates a bond. Simple as that. It's the energy that creates a bond between you and I or the love, the bond that, I, that creates between my wife and me and me and my children. And all of it is expressed dramatically different. But it also is the bond that allows me to create a bond within myself. If I'm the one who's talking, who's listening, I am. If I'm the one who's listening, who's talking, I am. That's the relationship between me and me, also known as the relationship between my mind and my heart or my mind and my body, or simply the relationship between me and me. That's love. Now, I live in Reno, Nevada, so the river that's near me is called the Truckee River. That's the name of the that's the name of the river that goes from Lake Tahoe through the basin here in Nevada and uh, in northern Nevada. So let's refer to the water that runs through the river. Let's call it love. And the 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 the, the source of the water is me. You know, in Lake Tahoe, it's maybe the source up there. It's a huge body of water. But let's just say for the conversation, for our imagination, that I am the source of that energy. Unconditional love is letting that flow of water run free. And in its various stages, it rages in the spring because of all the snow melt. And it's almost dry by the fall and winter. And it goes up and down, up and down throughout my life. But I'm always the source. That's unconditional love. Let's imagine conditional love. All along that river, I put several dams or several reservoirs holding that water back because I know that there's going to be dry season, so I hold back the water. And I only open the floodgates if certain conditions are met. And even when those conditions are met, I, I decide how much I open. So I may get a trickle of water or I may get a full blast of what that floodgate can do, but it's not all of it. 
So imagine that whole river, and let's imagine the Mississippi River or whatever big river you have down there in Australia, that all around it, there's those, there's those dams. Conditional love sets the rules by which you open those gates. And that's what we've been talking about before. For example, I'm Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. If I live up to the four agreements, then I'm worthy of the name. But if I don't live up to the agreement, I forgot the name. The fifth agreement be skeptical. Oh, no. How can I call myself Don Miguel Ruiz Jr.? <laughs> and I begin to judge myself, punishing myself for not living up to expectations. So the, the floodgate will close because I didn't live up to the expectation. And I castigate myself with my own judgment. There, There's another example of the four conditions right there. And... I can't give what I do not have, which means to my wife, hey, you're Mrs. Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. Here's the four agreements. Read it. Honey, how embarrassing. You, 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 just, you just made an assumption. Honey, didn't you read the book? You just took it personally. Huh. I only am hang out with people who are impeccable with their own, with their own word. Hmm. Then I'm domesticating her. Whenever I judge someone, I'm punishing them for agreements they never made. Anyways. That's the example of how I share that conditional love. I build dams. I try to build dams on other people's rivers to fit my point of view, to fit my point of my my integrity of what love should be. So that's conditional love. And conditional love only sees what it wants to see. It loves the illusion. In my case, the, the illusion of Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. That guy doesn't exist. But if I attach myself to that image, then every time I live up to it, the floods, the floodgates will open. If I do live up to it, no, sorry, if I do live up to it, the floodgates will open. If I don't, they'll never open. I'll just get the lack of water. That's the punishment, my own rejection. So what we're doing is becoming aware that we're doing that. And unconditional love is the willingness to see life as is. You can say, if conditional love only wants to see what it wants to see, unconditional love is allowing to see life as is, to see my wife, not as my wife, but as Susan, the woman that's living, doing her best with what she's got, which means that I see myself not as Don Miguel Ruiz Jr. I see myself as Miguel, who, whose name happened to be because my father loved me so much, he gave me his name. But I'm this living being to see myself for who I am. To see myself as the experience of being me as rather than a definition. Then little by little you can say that I begin to unlearn my domestication. Which is the equivalent of little by little I'm taking out those dams and letting that water flow. Because it feels so good to have a huge burst of that emotion flow through me. Which then you become aware that. All those times where we feel all that love is because we've given ourselves permission to experience it. And there you go. It's not. I don't feel love because of my kids or my wife. They're the people who give myself permission to experience it from the point of view of conditional love. From the point of view of unconditional love, I experienced it all the time. Of course, you can already hear someone say, well, how, how do you know something is special? Well, there's the thing. From the point of view of domestication, spe being special requires you to live up to certain images. But if you see it from unconditional life, love, everything is special. And at that point, you're not afraid. 
you're not afraid to share your love. You're not even afraid to say goodbye. You lose the fear of saying goodbye because because it teaches you the fear to let go of the fear of saying hello. Why waste your time with someone who doesn't want to be with you? Enjoy the people who enjoy being with you. And all of a sudden you realize that a lot of people do enjoy being around you. The biggest lie we've ever told ourselves is that we'll never experience love again. That's a big lie. Because the truth is, our love exists because we give it life. Because we are that energy that creates a bond. And that's how I see it. It's an amazing, amazing analogy. And what a, what a beautiful way to end uh, what's been a really amazing conversation. I'm so grateful uh, for your time and, and for your insights and, and, um, and wisdom. The question that I end every conversation with is, what makes you silly? Ooh, what makes me silly is that I see, still see myself as a young man. <laughs> I enjoy I, to be to be childlike is to be constantly constantly in awe of life, and I'm in awe of life. I I'm amazed by what life shows me. So for me, that's that's what makes me silly. I I, I enjoy being entertained and, and being awe like a child. I I'm having fun. Thank you so much for doing this, uh, Michael. Oh. Uh, Thank you so much, Alessar, for the opportunity. Thank you.